you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, 2 Corinthians 6, we'll begin together in just a moment in verse number 14. We're talking for a few weeks here about marriage, family, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although this passage is not about marriage and family, it is about the implications of the gospel on our life in establishing the relationships that will carry us over the course of our life. And so the implications of the principles set forth here are considerable for marriage and family. I really did not have in mind that we would be honoring graduates today when putting our series or schedule for the series together. But it is quite appropriate that we would have this manner of conversation on a day when we celebrate and commission to send out our graduating high school seniors to the university or to work or to the armed services in some cases. In essence, we are sending them out into adulthood. And uh, I hope that those of you who have just been sent out and those of you who are preparing to be sent out over the next years will heed carefully the principles that we're going to observe in the passage before us. We're not, again, dealing with a passage that is specifically focused on marriage and family, but we're given the opportunity to do a little preventive maintenance. They say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and I think that's likely the case. If you found your way to 2 Corinthians 6 and 14, I want to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word, you may be seated. The passage may sound unfamiliar, although there may be some degree of familiarity with content of these verses. The older translations of verse 14 read so much differently, it may not be apparent what is actually being referred to. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers has for hundreds of years been rendered in the English language as be not unequally yoked. I, I think I have in mind, I, at least I, I know from my perspective, um, what sort of runs through my mind, what I think when I read a passage and I think, oh man, I can't wait till Sunday. You know what I mean? And I think I know kind of what's in the mind of people when they, when they think, oh, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm not sure that this passage has any of that from your perspective or mine. But I am convinced that it's critically important that the principles of the text be implemented. And at my house, this passage, strangely enough, 
is really, really sweet to us as a people. Like in the early days of walking with Jesus, I was saved when I was 19, I was almost 20. I was too old for the youth group, way too immature for any adult ministry. So they would tag me on to student ministry events as the chaperone, the chaperone who needed to be chaperoned. I was maturity level somewhere along the, the middle school group, so I would hang with those guys, you know. And we, we, went, we went to a youth evangelism conference a, a, about a year and a half after I was saved. And, and you understand, when God saved me, I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about what it meant to follow Jesus. And every day, I really just opened my Bible and I learned something new. I learned that God expected certain things, and I, I didn't know that before, and I just tried to do it that day. And uh, we went to a youth evangelism conference. There was an evangelist there named Ken Smith. He's still an evangelist in, in Florida, I think, these days. And, and I, was, I was sort of captivated with Ken because he had been the chaplain for the football team at Mississippi State, and he was the chaplain for the football team at Florida State for many, many years with Bobby Bowden. And so he had the stories, you know, that sort, sort of pull a, a young man in. And then he read the passage, and he said, be not unequally yoked. And I thought, well, that sort of a, that sounds strange. What does that even mean? And he began to talk about what that meant. He, he began to talk about the fact that what that means for us is that we're not to pursue relationships with unbelievers, romantic relationships, marriage relationships, and then, and then you would think that would mean the same for dating relationships. The problem with that for me was I had a beautiful young girlfriend at home who was at that point not a committed follower of Jesus. I'll never forget going back to sort of a shady hotel where they had to stay in, and there was a rotary phone, you know, like in the Flintstones in the Stone Age, rotary phone you pick up and you dial the thing and having that conversation about her not being a follower of Jesus and what I felt to be the need for us to break up we hoped it would be a temporary thing and within three weeks she came to faith in Jesus and within a little more than a year of that she became my wife and so the way the Lord honored our effort at honoring this passage she was very understanding and the Lord was at work on both sides in that whole back and forth, has, it really makes this passage a sweet passage for me. And I think of the heartache that it has saved the both of us and the heartache that it stands to save you as well. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but your pastors pray for you. We have a schedule, there's a regimen for us so that every family in the family, every, every family at Longview Point is prayed for by name by a pastor once a month. 12 months out of the year. It's all, and, and the thing I think that always rises to the top of my prayer concerns for you as families is that God would give your children and your grandchildren a godly husband or wife. One of the most consequential decisions that your child or grandchild will ever make, that you'll ever make, is the decision that you make with regards to who you'll spend the rest of your life with as husband or or as wife. So this is a precious, precious passage to me and one that I think um, stands to have a tremendous impact in our lives together as a people. Look at verse 14. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. What does that mean in a general sense? In a general sense, it means that we are not pursuing relationships with those who are unbelievers. As believers, we don't want to be unduly bound by our affections so that we might make decisions or go directions that would be unhealthy to our walk with Jesus. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk through 2 Corinthians and all of the context here, but here's what I want you to know. 
This is in the midst of a section in 2 Corinthians, a fairly lengthy section in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is defending himself. And there's a lesson to be learned in the way he defends himself. He defends himself when he's afraid that failing to defend himself will somehow undermine the message. This is not an ego trip that Paul's on. His self-defense is not self-serving. His concern is for the well-being of the people. And if they've discounted his, his character as a messenger, his fear is that they'll discount the message itself. Now, Paul came to Corinth, established the church in Corinth, and in spite of some kind of wonky business in the city of Corinth, God was doing some pretty incredible things there. People were being saved from grave, heinous sin, their lives forever transformed by the power of the gospel. But soon after Paul leaves, he is followed there by false teachers, teachers that would uh, speak uh, poorly of the Apostle Paul. They seemed to chide him because he wasn't a great preacher in terms of style and presentation. Paul says, that's by design. I didn't want you to be swept away by, emotional, by, by emotionalism. I wanted you to be converted, to be moved on the basis of Christ and him resurrected. They seemed to sort of uh, speak poorly of Paul with regards to his his presentation, his person, he, he was not apparently a handsome man, overly impressive in size or stature. And there are various other ways that they sort of denigrated the Apostle Paul there in the church at Corinth. And over the course of time, they endeared themselves to the people of the church. And once, once they endeared themselves to the people of the church, they were able then to begin to lead them astray. And so what Paul is warning them against here is being influenced by their affection for these teachers who do not have their interest in view. Those false teachers now in the church at Corinth are not concerned with the well-being of the church, but the church can't see it because they care for them. The idea of not being mismatched with unbelievers is about guarding yourself against undue influence, worldly influence, negative influence, evil influence by being attached to those people or persons by your affections. My grandmother would say one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. The Apostle Paul says it elsewhere in the Corinthian correspondence saying a little leaven leavens the whole lump just takes a little poison to ruin the whole well. A little bad influence can have detrimental impact. Now, we'll talk about ways that this sort of balances itself out in just a moment, but the command stands. The principle is this. We do not want to be bound by our affections for anyone or anything in such a way that we could not see clearly God's plan, God's will, God's design, God's direction for our life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are far too often driven by our affections rather than making a cool-headed, objective decision about what is right or wrong regardless of the person or personality attached to the decision itself. As followers of Christ, we are to pursue righteousness in our lives and in our relationships. That is the principle that hangs over all of these verses. Paul begins to ask in verse 14 a series of six questions. Here they are. What partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? The answer, by the way, is none. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? 
Belial or Belier is a name given to, to Satan or to the Antichrist in Jewish literature during the period. It's only used here in the New Testament, but it's clearly a reference to Satan. What agreement does Jesus have with Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? That's a question we don't ask often enough, by the way. Cast this way, it can be especially insightful and helpful. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? See, you, you think that you have more in common with your neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus, but who is in the same social and economic class, is probably of the same race, from the same geographic background, votes for the same political party, maybe even does the same kind of work or enjoys the same social class or standing. The reality is you have more in common with the Christian who lives in a village in the 1040 window under third world conditions than you have with your neighbor who enjoys all of those commonalities but does not have a saving relationship with Jesus. What does the believer have in common with the unbeliever? And the answer here is, as it has been all along, nothing. What agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. And then Paul begins to deal with this issue, stringing together a series of Old Testament quotations. He is saying to us in the verses to follow, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the result of that ought to be a want within us to sanctify ourselves of all impurity, to pursue righteousness in all of our ways, to labor and strain and strive to walk with wisdom and uprightness because the Spirit of God abides within us. Look at the remainder of verse number 16. I will dwell among them, God says, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. A quote from Leviticus 26, where it is celebrated in the Mosaic law, in the law of Moses, that God is establishing a covenant with his people, that he will be with them and among them. A, a covenant commitment that God expands upon in the new covenant now, in that not only is he in our midst, but he is in our very hearts. I know that language has been abused and mistreated so much in Christian circles, it's almost become cliche, but it's true. God inhabits our hearts by faith in Jesus. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. A truth celebrated as long ago as Leviticus 26. Verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. Quote from Isaiah 52, 11. Do you realize what the setting for that quote in the Old Testament is? The people of Israel are in their Babylonian bondage, and God has just set them free. And God says, Israel, get out of Babylon. Get away from there. Run. Run. Get away. Come away from your captivity. Come away from your sins. You've been liberated. You've been free. And what Paul is saying here to believers is this. Come away from your captivity. Your chains have been broken. The bonds have been lifted. You have been set free. The door is unlocked. You have been liberated. Come away and be separate, the Bible says. 
Verse 18, he says, I'll be a father to you and you'll be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. A quote from 2 Samuel 7, which may not mean much to you this morning, but it's in that passage that God consecrates David, not just as king of Israel, but the head of the Davidic dynasty. And he promises there that, David, your sons will be seated on the throne of Israel forever, a promise that culminates in the lordship, in the kingship, in the eternal reign of Jesus, the son of David, descendant of that great king, the Lord and Savior of our life. What Paul is saying here with this subtle reference is that by faith in Jesus, we have become the recipients of all of God's promises for David. We have become the sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. All of this to motivate, to compel us to do what's described in verse 7. Since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. Labor and strain and strive, given all that God has done for us, that we might walk worthy of our calling before Christ. Now, essential to our ability to walk worthy of our call. Is, is the presence of healthy, wholesome relationships, especially the closest of relationships. I cannot imagine trying to walk with Jesus being married to a crazy woman. I don't know how you do it. I, I, don't, I don't know how that works. I, I, I cannot imagine, though I have observed it, I don't know how a person could walk with Jesus being married to an abusive or domineering man. I, d I don't know how ladies do it. I've seen it and, it, and it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, and ladies have the ability to pull it off in some extraordinary ways. Some of the most faithful women that I've known in my life have been women who didn't make the best decision with regards to who they'd marry, and yet they persevered through it and modeled the gospel in some powerful, powerful ways. I don't know how that works. I know it can work by the power of the Spirit. There's the ability to overcome some less than ideal circumstances. But if now, especially for those of you who are enjoying the single life, maybe with an eye toward the married life one of these days, now is the time to make some cool, cold, objective, calculating decisions about, about what that will or will not look like for you. Now, I always do premarital counseling with people who come to me and they want to be married, and I think all of our pastors do that, and it's just a wise thing to do. And part of the premarital counseling process for me is to try to talk you out of it. Not because I don't want you to get married or don't wish you all the best in the world, but I figure if I can talk you out of it, most anybody else can too. And I want to make sure that you are really committed to this thing in the beginning, right? But the reality is by the time you get to me, it's all over with. They come sit down in my office, and they all looking at each other, head swimming around, googly-eyed, and they ain't heard a thing I said. <laughs> and they don't care if they do. Because by that point, for good or for bad, they are bound by their affections. And so this is a conversation that you begin to have with your children and your grandchildren, not when he brings home the young lady whose skirt is too short. Or when she brings home the guy you never thought she'd bring home. This is a conversation that you begin to have 
well before that can ever take place. Before, they're ba- before you're bound by your affections, you begin to establish some parameters, some boundaries, some expectations for what it ought to look like for you moving forward. Because in the heat of the moment, it is a hard thing to make cool, calculating decisions about what is best or not. Now, there's a question that we need to ask of this passage before sort of pressing into marriage and dating family issues. How do we balance what is described here in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1 with the constant call of Jesus to engage a lost and dying world around us? The answer is, I, I don't know how to put this in three or four or five steps for you. But there ought to be a constant mental effort on your part to both engage a lost and dying world around you in a meaningful way, while at the same time pursuing the sanctification of your, of your life and your relationships. Those two can be kept in balance with great care. Jesus has called us to be the salt and the light of the world. Salt functions as a preservative. But except it is pressed to the material we hope to preserve, it will not have its intended effect. Except that light be cast into the darkness, it will not serve the purpose God intends it to serve in the world around us. If you're going to be an effective evangelist, an effective maker of disciples, you're going to have to have meaningful, real affectionate relationships with people in this world. In fact, you ought to have those kinds of relationships. If you don't, you're doing something wrong. But at the same time, you must know, according to the standard of God's Word and previously established uh, personal boundaries, the direction that God has called you to go, what is right, what is wrong, what you will or what you want on the basis of God's word and not the affection that may pull and tug at your desires or your decisions in the heat of the moment. It is possible to strike this balance. Now, we tend to go one of two directions. We can cast off restraint, begin to pattern our lives after the things of this world under the guise of becoming more effective evangelists. Now, I just got to tell you, guys, the church has never beat the world by trying to beat the, be the world. Though, I don't know if you know this or not, but the world is really good at being the world, and, and we don't have the tools or the skills necessary to pull it off. Like I always think, when I see, you know, when I see these church models that try to do the concert, the smoke show, or, or a high-level video production type stuff, I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue excellence. But we ain't, let's get real, we ain't beating Hollywood out here, right? We don't don't have the time, the resources, and heaven knows we don't have the talent to pull those sorts of things off, you know? Let's just be the church. Let's just be separate and distinct, uniquely Christian, given over to holiness. Let's just be who Jesus has called us to be. So you can can veer in that direction and and be in error. And, And then I've seen folks veer in the other direction. And, and be equally in error and, and probably have a lot less fun than people in error on the other side who want to give themselves over to this almost monastic lifestyle, so much separated from the realities of this life that there are virtually no kingdom advancing good in the here and now. We're really good at this, and we have to be careful of it. 
Christians have our own subculture now within our culture. We have our own music. We have our own movies. We have our own schools. We have our own vocabulary, right? We say things no one else understands. We forget that sometimes, but we speak this strange language at times that we have to be very careful of. And if you're not careful, over the course of time, you'll look around and there's this wall of insulation that exists between you and the world around you. Now, we don't want the influence of the world, but the reality is that our insulation often functions to prevent us from influencing the world much more effectively than the world from influencing us. So the answer to the question of how it is that we balance this call to engage the lost world around us and the call to come out from among them and be separate is that we try. The answer is that we walk in the Spirit. In fact, that's how Paul answers it in Galatians chapter 5. He's dealing with both groups. He's dealing with legalists who make it all about rules, and he's dealing with, with libertines who make it all about license. And Paul says the answer to finding this balance is to walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. The answer is you try. That's how you start. You always try, and you walk in the Spirit, and God has an incredible way of helping us to navigate these issues. Now, the reason I think it's important that we answer that question honestly, walk in the Spirit and we try, is because this looks different for us during different seasons of our life, right? I remember when God saved me, I wanted so badly to be able to go back to my friend group and take the gospel to them, and I tried. And it took me about six months to realize that I didn't have the maturity and grace to be able to manage the temptation that was always waiting for me there. Now, as time moved on, and I was able to grow and sort of be established in Christ, I was then able to often go back and engage that same friend group. But it would have been unwise and ultimately disastrous for me to have tried to continue that earlier on in my walk with Jesus. It would have been detrimental to my walk with Christ, and it wouldn't have proven any effect in their life because I would have succumbed to the temptations that were awaiting me there. For some of you, your children do not need to be around that friend that you're just about ready to jerk a knot in. For others, your kids are at a place in terms of maturity where inviting them into your home and investing in them and encouraging your child to do the same is a good gospel thing. The goal is to get to that place. The goal is to not, not to remain at a place where we have to constantly insulate ourselves from the things of this world. The goal is to get to a place of maturity where we're able to have meaningful relationships with those around us without being negatively influenced by the temptation that may await us there. So we're trying, and we're walking in the Spirit. In brief, what does this mean for marriage? It means that believers should not marry unbelievers. If it doesn't mean anything else, it clearly means that. But I'll take it a step further. It means that Christ followers should pursue marriage with a partner that shares his or her devotion to Christ. You're looking for someone who not only loves Jesus, but who loves Jesus in the same way and with the passion that you love Jesus. I've seen it a few times before, and it always infuriates me. Some young man 
shows up at church and he starts attending and doing all the right things and saying all the right things and going through all the right motions and he convinces her that he loves Jesus just like she does and then he finally convinces her to say I do and you couldn't find him around the church with the FBI and he never was what he pretended to be and there she is with all of her Christian commitments to marriage bound to a relationship that was, that was never headed toward health. It frustrates me. Young men do better. At least if you're going to be sorry, be honest about it, right? It, it's, it just can be a dangerous that You want to make sure on the front end that the marriage that you're entering into is what you expected it would be in the beginning. Well, if it means this for marriage, does it have anything to say about dating? Sometimes I hear people talk, say, I'm going to preach on the biblical view of dating. And I think this is going to be a really short sermon because the Bible doesn't say anything about dating. And, and the Bible really doesn't say anything about courtship or whatever else it is that the hip, cool kids call it these days, right? We talk it now. That's like the latest I know. So I'm old and not very cool anymore. The Bible just doesn't talk about those issues. But here's what I can tell you in wisdom. In wisdom... If a person is not a candidate for marriage, they ought not be a candidate for dating or courtship or anything else that you want to call it or describe it as. And I get things can be terribly tricky now, and there's a whole other level of issues and challenges. And, you know, you start out in the beginning, and, and, and I was always one who was really big. I don't think it's cute or helpful for us to talk about five and six-year-old kids being boyfriend and girlfriend, I've always really hated that, you know? But, but then, in the world that we're living in today, your third-grade son comes home, and, and you hear him whispering with his brother that he has a girlfriend at school, and you're going, we don't do girlfriends at school, but then you go in the other room, and you're going, yes, yeah, all right, all right, we're good. We're good here. I like all that. So I get there's challenges galore with regards to raising children and seeing them come up in the training. And listen, I'm not trying to suggest I'm an expert in any of these things. I'm trying to learn like you are. But there has to be real effort on our part. Now, I find that moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas get all stirred up and enthusiastic over issues that really should not even be on the radar while neglecting to give any mind whatsoever to the young man or young woman's relationship with Jesus. Before you ask who their parents are, where they come from, or what their grades are, do they get in trouble in school, are they ugly, are they handsome, before any of those things are on the table, we really ought to concern ourselves with the question of whether or not this young man or this young woman loves Jesus with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind. What local body they're connected to. Are they sharing their faith? Are they in the same place spiritually as me or as my child or my grandchild? That's really where our interest ought to be. Before commenting on the young girl that your son brings home and her attractiveness or how presentable she is, it would be a good thing, a positive reinforcement to make comments about her love for Jesus and how faithfully she's walking, how she carries herself in modesty. Those are the kinds of comments, and that's the kind of commentary that would really be productive in helping our children and our grandchildren set biblical expectations for dating, for relationships, and 
for marriage down the road as well. If it means for marriage that we shouldn't marry an unbeliever, it ought to have some application within the context of dating or courtship, namely that Christ's followers should only date other equally faithful followers of Jesus. Well, there's one last question that I think we have to ask because it's sort of hanging out there for some. What about people who are already unequally yoked or mismatched together with unbelievers? And the answer is, you stay. For those of you in a marriage relationship, and I'm not talking about dating, in that case, you go. You go fast. You go. But if you are, if you are a believer and you are married to an unbeliever, you stay. You stay and you love them. And you stay and you love Jesus. And you stay and you love the gospel. And you orient your life around the gospel. And with a gentle, and quiet, and peaceable spirit, you share with them the gospel and you pray earnestly that God would turn their heart. Sometimes people come to me with this kind of lifetime movie network, Hallmark movie idea about marriage, like there's one star-crossed lover out there for you, and if you happen to pick the wrong one, well, then you're just all messed up. And no hope for you. you. You can never recover. Pick the wrong one. Just one soulmate. I, I, I have devised a foolproof way of determining who it is that God ordained for you to be married to. Y'all want to know? If you will go home today and find your marriage certificate, whoever's name is on the marriage certificate <laughs> is the person that God ordained you to marry. And I understand that there can be difficulties that come with being mismatched or unequally yoked. But I also know by observation that it can be a remarkable opportunity to embody, to exhibit, to model, to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all hear me talk about my granny a lot. One of the most impressive aspects of her testimony. I didn't get it before, and I'm not sure I always got it when I was watching it up close and personal, but... If there's anything that I think about, any memory I have of her that I find to be more impressive than others, it's, it's my memories of the ways that she cared for a grandfather who struggled to know how to love her well, was often uncaring, frequently mean, and consistently neglectful of her needs. And yet she loved him. I, I would wake up, she would wake me up on Saturday mornings, and it would make me mad beyond frustration. She'd be sitting on the other side of the wall that separated my bedroom from the, from the living room beside his chair, reading out loud the Bible in the hopes that his hearing of the Word would have a transforming effect in his life, and it never did. But she loved him to death. And in doing so, modeled for me and our family the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ has called us to in some of the most powerful, powerful ways. You stay. 
Well, I get there are abusive, physically abusive situations that don't, don't allow for you to be able to stay physically, where you have to separate yourself. And I'm not speaking to those issues. But with that exception, with that exception, you stay and you love well and you pray for the day that God turns the heart and restores what he intended all along. I, I, I hope that this will be a sermon that bears fruit 50 years from now. That's my prayer. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few minutes or what God's doing in the hearts of his people. But I pray that 50 years from now, the children of our church will be different because of our desire to do what God has outlined for us in the passage before us. Would you join me in praying just that prayer? God, I pray that you would help us to orient our lives, our relationships, our affections around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to, to know, to be certain. God, I, I pray that you would help us to be on guard against our decisions being cloud, clouded or confused or disrupted by some attachment that we have to this world or to someone in this world. Help us to be a people who are committed to what is right before God, no matter who's for it or against it. God, I, I pray for the marriages and the families of our church once more, God, that you would um, hold together, help us to exhibit the kind of grace and mercy that you have shown us to those that we love the most. God, even to those that love us the most. I pray that you'll help us to be faithful even when we're inclined toward faithlessness. God, forgive us where we come short of the standard that you've set before us. Help us not just in relationships, but every area of our life come away from our captivity to know the freedom that you've afforded us in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name.